Hey there, before I get started, did you know I've started a YouTube channel? That's right. I have live streams that have taken place and some that are coming up, and these are with unstructured guests and are flat out amazing. I started with Chase Hughes. He's a behavioral engineer, wrote the book Ellipsis Behavior. That book covers everything from hypnosis to negotiation, all the way up to, well, creating a Manchurian candidate. Followed it up with Viva Fry, who's a YouTube lawyer a huge channel and a giant following really fun guy next up i'm have christina linen now christina is noted as the world's best hypnotist by cbs and she's famous for hypnotizing simon cowell with her dog after christina i have mandy o'brien who runs bombard's body language a very famous youtuber who view different videos and reacts to them Next, Jason DeFilippo is coming up. Jason DeFilippo has answered more questions with Jordan Harbinger than I can even imagine. And after that, I will have Scott Rouse, another great body language expert. Now, what is special about this live stream is you get to ask the questions. Every one of these folks has been a guest on Unstructured, so you can listen to the episode and maybe I didn't ask a question you want to hear, or you come up with something that you want to know. This is a wonderful opportunity for you to join in, ask the questions. So please look for me on YouTube, Eric Hunley. Very easy to find. And while you're looking for me, I'm Eric Hunley on all the socials. I hope to hear from you, and I hope you enjoy this show. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Today, we are joined by Bob Hamer. Now, Bob Hamer is a retired FBI agent who worked in Undercover, and he wrote about his career in the book, The Last Undercover. How are you doing today, Bob? Hey, thanks, Eric. I'm, I'm doing well. Well, I'm really excited to have you on. I've mentioned to you earlier, but you will be my eighth FBI agent, and I find it really fascinating that I can get all these different agents and everybody's doing a different job. Well, I think that was one thing that always interested me with the FBI, that we weren't really limited to just one particular violation. And you could work a violation for four or five years. And if you put your time in, you put in some paperwork and you could probably get transferred to a different squad that would work a completely different violation. So I always found that a, a great part of the FBI and it, it kept things new and interesting and you just didn't kind of get burned out with investigating the same type of uh, cases. Yeah, that's going to be handy. Now, from what I understand, and I probably, the numbers could have changed or I might've got them messed up, but I understand there's around 10,000 FBI agents. And from what I've heard from you, you know, in doing research out of that many agents, there's only maybe a hundred to 150 who actually are undercover. Yeah. You know, I never knew the real numbers, but the way the undercover program works in the FBI, it's not like television where the supervisor walks out in the squad bay and says, hey, we need a contract killer today. Does somebody want to play that role? And you raise your hand. The FBI has a selection process. You have to apply. You have to be approved by several different levels of administration. Once you're approved at the local level, then it goes back to headquarters, and then they have a two-week 
in-service, which is kind of a selection process. They want you to think it's like Marine Corps Officer Candidate School or, or BUDS training for the SEALs. It's not it's not that hard, <laughs> but that. there still is that selection process. So okay. some guys, not everybody wants to work undercover. That's one thing I want to make clear. It's not the most sought after position in the FBI, but some of those that apply aren't approved by the different levels of administration. They maybe don't pass a psychological background in terms of being the loner, the self-starter, that type of individual. And then some people can't get through the two-week in-service because they they can't take the stress of that two weeks. And then a lot of guys, once they are approved and they work one or two undercover assignments, they just decide, ah, oh, this isn't for me. The, the hours are, are too, they're too unpredictable. The cases are too dangerous. And I really don't want to do this anymore. So it turned out that maybe at any one time, there might only be 100 or 150 people within the FBI that are certified to work undercover. And even amongst those, there were probably just a handful of us that spent much of our career in various undercover assignments. So there were a few. I'm not quite sure who all you've interviewed, but guys like Jack Garcia uh, myself, I mean, we spent most of our career working various undercover assignments. So it was just, we gravitated toward that, and that's what we like to do. You've also kind of mentioned you seem to be sort of an independent spirit. I think you wrote like an apology in your foreword that that was the one time you actually followed the rules to the letter. <laughs> yeah, when I first wrote the book, the Last Undercover, which was my first book. I've actually authored or co-authored nine books, but the first book, you, when you're an FBI agent and you write about the FBI, you have to submit it for approval from headquarters. And the only the only uh, pushback I got from the Bureau was that I couldn't name the names of the agents. So where I put their names in the original manuscript, I had to replace those with my case agent or the surveillance agent or something like that. So that was, that was one rule that I followed. Is that because the they were still active? Uh, yes. Okay. So if everybody was retired, then you could name names, I guess. I think so. I haven't written a book like that and maybe they would allow that to, to go through. Okay. I know there's interesting rules from what I understand. And I've also had secret service on and CIA so th- that was interesting. Like, I understand that you can't profit while you're in the FBI by writing a book on the side. You need to be retired. Is that incorrect? I think so. There have been a couple agents that have written books, but they've been almost educational books or technical books. So it hasn't been, this is my life as an FBI agent, as an undercover agent, or this is about the case that I worked. It hasn't been those type. It's been more of, I think, cybersecurity type books that, uh, that have been approved. But for the most part, yeah, you have to be, you have to be retired to write it. And the FBI does not allow outside income, so right. we can't have second jobs. And I'm sure the bureau would view a book that was written for profit to be outside income. 
See, I find that interesting because I know one active CIA agent who did write a book and I interviewed him about it. <laughs> so obviously the different services have different standards. Yeah, that that actually surprises me. But Well, it was very funny because I didn't realize, but he got really quiet when I asked a couple of questions and did oh. the whole, uh, I, uh, I'm not familiar with that. I was like, oh, you're not? Oh, okay. And I cut it out yeah, of the interview. Yeah, I can funny. either confirm nor deny that type of thing. <laughs> it, it was worth it just to get that reaction of that. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, back to your undercover career. From what I understand, you did apply to be on the CIA at one point? Yeah, I had, I had spent four years on active duty in the Marine Corps. And as I was getting out, I was really seeking something interesting and exciting and, and applied to the CIA and literally scored a zero on a personality test that they gave. So <laughs> okay. they, they weren't too interested. They had the test they gave, they scored you from a zero to a 10 and a zero could essentially live on a deserted Island for the rest of his life and be content. And a 10 had to be constantly surrounded by people. And I, I admit that I somewhat skewed my answers. I assumed that they were looking for people that they uh, parachuted behind enemy lines and he stayed there for three months and then he whacked the third world dictator and they extricated him by a helicopter or something. Well, you were a Marine, um, right? Yes. So yeah. you're thinking recon. No. Right. But that's not what I did. Oh, and, no, you're uh, a lawyer, if I recall. Yeah. I don't like to talk about that. But yeah. that <laughs> I don't. I don't brag about being a judge advocate in the Marine Corps. I I'll brag about being a Marine, but I I try to avoid telling everybody what my MOS was. But uh, yeah, so I thought that's what the CIA was kind of looking for. And the psychologist, when he came back with the results, he looked at me and shook his head and he said, "I've I've never seen a zero personality." And <laughs> kind of laugh at my wife. We've she and I have been married for forty six years, and she wow. still occasionally reminds me that. I'm the only person declared by the federal government to be a zero personality. But, uh, <laughs> oh, I, and when you, when you understand, for the most part, the CIA's role are working at foreign embassies and getting close to foreign government officials and right. trying to recruit them to provide us intelligence. So, I mean, it makes sense that they were looking for somebody that had a, a little more personality but I think that the actual test and the results is a little different. I, I guess you could say I don't need people. It's not that I don't want to be around people. It's like I really don't need people and relationships. And therefore, that probably skewed a lot of my answers. Yeah, I'll definitely want to go into that a little bit more later. Going into being undercover, though, what did you think it would be like ahead of time, you know, before you went into it? You know, when I was going through the academy, we had a couple people that, that were counselors that had done some undercover work, and I just thought that that sounded exciting. I probably watched a little too much TV <laughs> thinking that, wow, this would be really exciting. I'm sort of of that Ephraim Zimbalist, the FBI generation, where mm. guys were wearing suits and would flash their badge and credentials and say FBI, and that didn't quite interest me as much as being that guy that nobody knew who he was, that was playing a role, kind of, I was more of the James Rockford type of guy that <laughs> okay. would 
And so that just interested me. So I, I tried to gravitate toward those type of assignments. I mean, once I, once I got out of the academy, I guess my goal was to eventually work undercover and seek out those opportunities. And it was everything I expected it to be and, and actually more. Well, that's cool. It's nice when something fulfills the expectations. Now, I didn't yeah. ask you oh, about yeah. that because I did not realize that you as an undercover agent, and I don't know how all the other services work or local police, but you would work multiple cases at the same time. That surprised me. Yeah, and, you could. That didn't always happen to me. But toward the end of my career, I always kind of laughed that I was one of the few certified undercover agents on the West Coast. So if they were looking for, I did the IOU cases. So if they were looking for somebody that was impotent, old, and ugly, they would <laughs> contact me. So I, toward the end, I was working three undercover cases at the same time. And that was, that was a little too much. I mean, it was pretty stressful. Quite frankly, it was stressful from the FBI administrative standpoint, not from the bad guy standpoint. I, I could have, I think I, I could have easily worked even more undercover cases if I didn't have to fight a lot of the bureaucracy that uh, comes with any undercover assignment. But, well, what I'm curious about is how do you maintain an identity on multiple cases, or do you just have one identity and you can be both a pervert yeah, I, and a thief at the same time? Right, yeah. The, the three cases that I worked, one was a, a major case called Operation Smoking Dragon, and it was a Cigarettes, we were right? targeting an Asian criminal syndicate that that lasted three years. So I was undercover for three years on that particular investigation. At the same time, I had infiltrated a group called NAMBLA, the North American Man Boy Love Association, which was a group of pedophiles, men that were sexually attracted to boys. And then I was actually working a Vietnamese gang case. So I maintained the same backstory for all three of those, that I was an older man. I mean, I had the same name. I had the same undercover credit cards and undercover identification. Okay. I, I was an older man. I was handicapped. I had some real estate and I had some financial investments and accounts. I had clients that I worked for. So it was, it was the same with all three of those. So it wasn't like, oh my gosh, today my name is Eric and, and I'm in a weapons case and the phone rings and wait a minute, when this number dials and I'm Charles and I'm a pedophile, you know, so it wasn't, it wasn't anything like that. Okay. Well, I just, I had to clarify that in my head to get around that. And I guess that makes sense because you can be a pedophile who runs a warehouse that is allowing cigarettes to go through for a living. Sure. Yeah. And I'm guessing that maybe I'm wrong, but maybe the more, um, more of a criminal you are and the more variety you have, the better each cover reinforces themselves. To a certain extent, yeah. I mean, when we worked the, the Vietnamese gang case, I I was someone that was dealing with counterfeit cigarettes. So I, I talked about that and could talk about it openly and even at one point provided them with some counterfeit cigarettes. So it, it added to my credibility 
when I was dealing with the gang members. Well, that's awesome. Now, I, I wanted to also check with you. I had on, I, I guess you'd call it a very different kind of undercover guest, Jack Barsky. And he ultimately had a run-in with the uh, FBI himself, but he was a KGB agent. Oh, wow. And he lived here in the United States for 10 years as a um, fake citizen. He, he was born in East Germany, smug, came in, and established an identity. And he ultimately quit, and he's a citizen now of the U.S. Great guy. But one of the things we discussed was he's suffering to this day, as he put it, with a near-personality split because <laughs> of having to maintain... I mean, he literally had a family here and a family in Germany. Oh, wow. Okay. And children both. Now, I'm not going to say yours is extreme, but I'm I'm wondering, do you have any kind of effects of having to maintain two very distinct identities? No. I, 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 maybe my wife, if you interviewed her, she'd tell you I have issues. But no, that, that wasn't a problem for me. I... I honestly believe that God blessed me with a pretty screwed up brain and I could very easily compartmentalize so that I could, I could be the, the, the contract killer. And then I could go home and be the little league coach or be the husband, be the father, be the Sunday school teacher. I mean, I, I was able to, to compartmentalize and, and never really, it was never that I didn't know who I was at any particular time. I knew when I went undercover, I, I assumed that identity. I was that person. And then as soon as I came home or uh, got back in to the Bob Hamer life, I was Bob Hamer. So I, I didn't, I didn't have that. Was humor a tether for you? Because I know you've talked about having a habit of playing songs on your radio. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a lot of that somewhat kept me sane. I, I think what happened, and maybe if you've talked to, it sounds like you've talked to some pretty interesting people on your podcast, but the first time I went undercover, it really was, the first meeting was pretty innocuous. But I came away with an adrenaline rush. I mean, this was this was exciting for me. I had actually gone in to it in the meeting. My knees were shaking, and it wasn't because I was scared. It was because that adrenaline was just coursing through my veins. And I even said, I said, God, stop the knees from shaking, because if he sees the knees, he's going to think there's something up. And when I got done with that very first meeting, it was like, oh my gosh, what a rush. And I wanted to, it was almost like I was chasing the adrenaline dragon. So every time I'd have a meeting, I was trying to kind of up it a little bit more, to up the danger a little bit more, just to get that same rush that I had from that very first meeting. So I would, I would try to do things, but I'd also, I wanted to see how far I could push it, but I wanted to have fun while doing it. So, I mean, you mentioned the music. I'm a country and Western fan. So I, uh, I mean, I, one of the funniest ones I had was I was involved in a $60 million shoulder fire missile deal. And every time the bad guy got into my car and I turned the ignition on, 
it was cued to Charlie Daniels' song, Uneasy Rider, and the first line you hear on every tape is, uh, on every undercover tape, the first line you hear is, don't you know what this man's a spy? He's undercover agent for the FBI. And then it's Charlie Daniels finishing up the song. And I would play Jailhouse Rock, Folsom Prison Blues. I mean, I'd have bad guys in the car literally kind of dancing to the music as we're riding along and I'm I'm playing <laughs> I'm playing these songs. Uh, I did one case I, I, I always I guess in some ways I, I kind of viewed it as a TV show uh-huh. and so I would have my own soundtracks and I, I had one where a guy gave me two kilos of crystal meth and I timed it perfectly and it wasn't visual because it was audio. I, I didn't have a camera. It was just the audio tape. But just as he's handing me the two kilos of crystal meth, I've got it played. Harold Melville and the Blue Notes are singing, If You Don't Know Me By Now, You'll Never Ever Know Me. And I just thought, yep, that kind of says it all, pal. <laughs> well, that Okay, there's a couple of things that I can think of with that. Number one. The fact you're so concentrating on getting your soundtrack right has to relieve a lot of stress because you're you're playing a game and that takes something away from the the situation. Probably makes you come across as even calmer. No, I I, I think so. Yeah. Also, it's so blatantly obvious that it seems unlikely, and it reminds me. I'm going to reach back to Jack Barsky again, but when he was training he had to go all over moscow etc and pick out people who might be tailing him so he would do this for days at a time they have 20 30 people and he'd have to give reports on who they all were and he only missed one person and it was a person yeah it was a person that he had seen before though but what this guy did is when he's when he saw him and kind of met his eye the guy walked up to him and bummed a cigarette Okay. Yeah. And I, I mean, totally I, I think disarmed him. I think there is a lot of truth to the more obvious you are, the less obvious you appear. I wore gangs for five years in South Central L.A. Uh, I'm a white guy, and I was buying drugs from Crip members midnight by myself in an old beat up pickup truck. And when we finally broke the case, and we arrested thirteen members of these various Crip sets. And the one guy had sold me rock cocaine on five different occasions. And I said, you know, you had to suspect a white guy coming down here to buy drugs. And he, he looked at me and he shook his head and he said, you know, we figured the police would be too stupid to send a white guy down here. Oh, my God. And it was just, it was just, I mean, it was just too obvious that <laughs> they didn't, they didn't pick up on it. I mean, I've laughed that if you made a movie of my life, people wouldn't believe it. Because you wouldn't cast Bruce Willis to be buying drugs in South Central L.A. You wouldn't cast Bruce Willis to be working an Asian criminal syndicate. I mean, you'd get you know Jackie Chan and you'd get Chris Rock or somebody like that right, right. to play those different roles. But yeah, I was able to do it. I was able to, to, to pull it off and sell whatever backstory that I developed. Well... It- can you describe the one backstory? I feel like if the story makes sense, you know, then everybody will fill in details. Now with the operation, was it Smoking Dragon? 
you right. established yourself as a, a property owner, right? And you happen to have a warehouse, something like that. Right. Yeah. I had, I had a warehouse. We found out through a source that one of the top, well, the top importer of counterfeit cigarettes on the West coast was looking for one. He wanted to try to make sure that he could get his cigarettes in through the port of Los Angeles or Long Beach, two of the biggest ports in the world. And then he needed a place to store them. And then he wanted the ability to have them transported anywhere in the, in the nation. So we came up with a backstory that we would have a warehouse that I had access to long haul truck drivers and that occasionally I, I might be able to help get the stuff, get his containers through the ports without being seized because I had a few guys that worked the port but only if they worked the same days could I get their containers through. So <laughs> we, I mean, obviously we were working with customs and immigration and they knew what we were doing and, and they had a limit on how many containers they were going to allow us to bring through. And for the bad guys, a container of counterfeit cigarettes, they were investing about a quarter of a million dollars. So if those containers did get seized, they were out quite a bit of money. So they were willing to pay me to guarantee that that would go through. So occasionally we would help them get a container in. And then we were using those cigarettes once they got in to track them. The Bureau was really, this was sort of a twofold investigation. One, we were very concerned about what was getting into the port and how it was getting in. And those people that were bringing it in to avoid taxes, committing crimes, but also a lot of these counterfeit goods, particularly the counterfeit cigarettes, were filtering down to the mom-and-pop grocery stores, some of which were owned by Middle Easterners who were using the proceeds to finance terrorism. So it was kind of a, a two-pronged investigation. Let's get the people that are bringing in the counterfeit cigarettes, and let's identify those people that own the, the stores that are using the cigarettes then to finance terrorism. Uh, Out of curiosity, you've mentioned something before about always being very focused on how juries are going to accept you as a um, witness. How do you look ahead while you're building a case and cover entrapment concerns? Well, I think that's, that's a great question because as an undercover agent, actually as a police officer, as any investigator, you've got to think like a defense counsel. So you have to recognize how are they going to be able to break down this case. You are required as the FBI agent, as the investigator, to prove each element of the offense beyond a reasonable doubt. So you've got to think like a defense counsel and think, okay, I, I can't give them this line of attack on this case. I've got to fill fill in all the elements and then I I can't give them a defense. So on the entrapment issue, you always have to make sure that it's really initiated by the defendant that they're the ones that are that are talking about it that you you're not you're not asking them to commit a crime that they're not predisposed to commit. 
So it's, you know, it just, it varies with, with each investigation, but I, a good example in the counterfeit cigarette case, one of the, one of the targets was a female mm-hmm. and she worked very hard to move these cigarettes. And I, more than on more than one occasion, I would just say, Hey, why don't you get a real job? You could, you know, <laughs> as hard as you're working, you get a real job. No, no, no. I like to party too much. You know, I, this is why I do this. And so you so, tried to dissuade her and could actually use exactly. Yeah. Hmm. I think you also did that in your later case with NAMBLA at the last minute. Didn't you say, look, the weather's horrible. Why don't we just stall a week? We'll, we'll try it another time. I'm impressed. You read the book. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. That was a little different situation in, in that case because we had set up a phony boat that was going to take them down into Mexico where they thought they were going to have sex with little boys and the weather was horrible. And I was afraid they were going to back out because of the weather. So I was offering them the alternative not to back out of the trip, but we could take a car and I could drive across the border and we wouldn't have any problems by driving across the border rather than getting on the boat. But they, they all chose to get on the boat. And thus you were covered in the sense you could say, look, Hey, they really, really wanted to go. Right. Yeah. In, in that particular case, in, in Nambla, I was able to establish pretty early on that they had all had sex with little boys in the past, that they had traveled to have sex, that Ugh. they had a desire to do this. So, uh, we were able to cover that element fairly quickly. And you had to, though, because if I recall, you weren't being supported initially because there was a First Amendment issue by it being a registered organization. Is that right? Yeah, we really weren't targeting NAMBLA, the organization. We were targeting the individuals that were committing crimes. I, I think one of the AUSA's assistant United States attorneys said it best when he said, NAMBLA is barnyard defecation. We're not going after the defecation. We're going after the flies that are hovering <laughs> around it. And I think that was very true. That's what we were, that's what we were doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And for your podcast, I cleaned up his language too. Oh, but, thank you. Thank yeah. you. And what is the most interesting thing that you have encountered being undercover? Oh, um, well, clearly the most bizarre, there's a lot of things that are interesting, but the most bizarre was a case that we worked was a female circumcision. And uh, I was even unaware that it was a federal violation until I was approached to be the undercover agent. But it's, it's a violation. I think it was in 1996, the federal government passed the the female circumcision law, and it prevents anyone from performing female circumcision Mm -hmm. on a person under 18 years of age, except for medical reasons. And the FBI had learned of, of a person that was doing this and almost killed a child after performing the surgery. And so we were targeting that particular person. Now, interestingly enough, even if you read the legislative intent, it was essentially to go after these somebody from the Middle East who was mm. practicing medicine over in the Middle East and would perform these procedures and now has moved to the United States and is 
probably driving a taxi cab or something. I was thinking immediately more First Amendment questions that may be popping up around that case. Well, not really because of the, because it was... A law. I mean, in essence, it was practicing medicine without a degree or a certification. So the person that we ended up targeting, the first person ever convicted under that Female Circumcision Act was actually a white guy that was a tattoo artist and body modification expert. And the first meeting I had at his house, we were talking, he presented me with a, showed me a bunch of pictures of procedures he performed, all kinds of genitalia type of procedures. And he had eight by 10 color photographs of all this stuff that he had done. And then he escorted me into his back room where he performed the procedures. And we walked into the bathroom and in the bathroom, there were two people sitting in a bathtub of blood. One was a female that had purple hair and another was a skinny white guy on a laptop computer, uh, typing away on a laptop computer. And Todd, who was performing the procedures, he didn't believe in suturing. So after he performed whatever procedures he did, he had you sit in this herbal bathtub for weeks until you healed. So I walk in and I see two people sitting in a bathtub of blood and there was no way to prepare for anything like that. I mean, I would, I didn't sleep well at night cause I think, okay, if they find my says this to me, how do I respond? So in my mind, I had rehearsed all these different scenarios for every undercover investigation that, that I perform so that sometimes when they'd catch me off guard in my mind, I had already rehearsed that scene a hundred times and it just was able to spit out what, what almost sounds to be extemporaneous exclamation. In fact, it was something that I'd been rehearsing in my mind for days. But in this case, when you see two people in a bathtub of blood, a woman with purple hair and a guy pounding away on his laptop computer, there really wasn't any way to prepare. And I just asked the woman, may I ask what procedure you had done? And she had just had the female circumcision. And I said, Oh, that's, that's, you know, interesting. Willingly, I'm asking Todd to do this procedure on my stepdaughters. And then when I turned to the guy and I asked what procedure he had done, he had actually had his urethra rerouted through his scrotum. Um, and Charming. So there was just, I mean, no way to prepare for the, for those responses. So clearly it was <laughs> the most bizarre encounter that I had uh, in my undercover career. Wow. You had mentioned also in the book that sometimes you had more knowledge because of obviously briefings and surveillance and things like that sort. And if you were to reveal that knowledge without, you know, actually finding it out in person, you were in very severe danger. Did you ever have any close calls? No, but you're right. I mean, that is, you have to, you have to be able to separate what you've learned in a briefing and what you've learned as the undercover agent. I never had the close call where I made a mistake, but 
there was one case where I was with a couple of the targets. This was an organized crime case. And the one guy, his given name was Craig, but he went by Anthony. And mm. we had another FBI agent that had a little too much to drink that was supposed to be my surveillance team. And he referred to the guy in the company of everyone as Craig, but mm. everyone knew him as Anthony. Ouch. And I had to quickly come up with an excuse. At the time I was posing as a screenwriter and I said that I had recognized the guy. He was an old character actor. I said, I think somebody did refer to you as Craig, you know, talking to the group of bad guys. And mm -hmm. they kind of bought that. And I said, that guy's just a drunk. He's a character actor. In fact, I think he's having trouble even getting hired anymore because of his drinking. <laughs> and so they kind of, they kind of bought it. But it, it somewhat, Eric, this comes back to the zero personality. Mm -hmm. I preferred to work by myself. I didn't, I, I usually didn't like to work with another undercover agent. I was too busy trying to protect my story and to protect myself and not have to worry about covering for somebody else. I'd had a couple bad instances with surveillance teams. So I preferred not to have a surveillance team because I didn't want to get burned. So it was just, it was just so much easier to, to be out there by myself. Did you go by Essentially, Bob also while you're out there? Just use your yeah, same first always, name? Yeah, always use Bob as my first name. Now, I had my middle name was always, there was always a, a method to my madness. My first undercover name was was Robert J. Bourne. So that, that was long before the movies, but that was Robert Ludlam. And then my second undercover name was Robert William Wallace from Braveheart. And then <laughs> my third undercover name was Robert David Webb, which... David Webb is Jason Bourne's real name. If you've followed I've read the trilogy, all three books. yeah. So there was again that was just kind of an, another way to screw with people, really, just trying to give hints. And but I always kept Bob because I didn't want you, you know, coming up to me and in in public and going, "Hey, Bob, you know, it's great having you on there." on the podcast and it's and the bad guy turns to me and says, I thought you said your name was George. So I always, I always kept the same first name just in case I, in case I ran into someone that I knew. And, and another read from a practical standpoint, this happened to me a couple times when I was dealing with other undercover agents where their name may be Eric. And I knew them as Eric and I talked to them as Eric and their undercover name was Willie. Mm. And now I've got to think, okay, I've been calling you Eric for two weeks as we prepared for this case. And now when we're with the bad guys, I, I got to remember that your name is Willie. And, and so I didn't want to cause any more anxiety for another undercover agent. So I just, I always kept it as Bob. Fortunately for me, Bob was, a fairly common name and innocuous. Oh, it's Bob. Good old Bob. Yeah. Yeah. It's Bob. Uh, but you know, I didn't have, I didn't have some kind of strange name that just didn't quite fit whatever the character I was trying to play. Now, 
Does that also help in terms of, and I believe you have mentioned it, that you keep your fake identity as close to your real identity in some ways, like, like a, a really skilled liar is going to be telling about 80% of the truth. Exactly. Yeah. The, you, you, you lie as little as possible. I mean, if, and I'm, I'm being a little melodramatic here, but if you're going to get killed, you want to get killed because of a big lie, not because you've been playing like you're single. And all of a sudden you, you talk about your wife. And they said, hey, I thought you were, you know, I didn't think you were married. And they end up shooting you over the stupid little lie, not the big lie. So I, I, for the most part, I tried to keep as much of it as true without sharing that much. So it wasn't like I sat around with the bad guys and talked about my kids and, and my wife and right. my dog and uh, all of that. You, you didn't, you didn't, I sure. tried not to get that personal. When you're talking about running, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And I think your yeah. first case, you did actually use your wife being pregnant to say, Hey, um, I got to go to another town because of a doctor and medical stuff. Right. Yeah. She was pregnant and, and we used I, I used that as as a reason that we were going to be leaving the area. Okay, well, reaching back, and I know we're getting tight on time. I am curious, how did you live a normal life in the community? And by that, I mean, couldn't you run into these people at Home Depot? You know, for the most part, most of my career was spent in L.A. L.A. is a large town. Sure. A lot of my undercover work was out of town. That didn't become an issue. But there was one time that it, it hit very close to home. I was the undercover agent in a, the L.A. Mafia family case in the, in the mid-'80s. And that week, a guy had threatened to break my legs and run me over with the car because I had been late with some payments. And Oof. my daughter, who was about six or seven at the time, we were shopping at Kmart. Now, FBI agents shop at Kmart because they don't make that much money, but I didn't think that Tony Soprano shopped at Kmart. And all of a sudden, I'm I'm with my daughter in Kmart holding her hand, and I look up, and here comes the guy that has threatened to break my legs and run me over with the car. Mm. And I, I grabbed my daughter and we kind of hustled out the, the back of Kmart through the warehouse area. And it was a month or two later, we were actually at a parent teacher conference. And my, the, my daughter's teacher mentioned that my daughter said that her dad was very special, that he could take her to the place for the regular customers who weren't allowed to go at Kmart. <laughs> <laughs> so, From the she, mouth of babes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she didn't. She didn't. She didn't blow my cover as an undercover agent, but uh, so we kind of laughed. I thought that was funny, but that was, in terms of being with the family, that's as close as as it ever came. Uh, that's pretty I've, close. I've been when I was actually undercover. I had a couple pretty close calls with civilians. You said civilians. Uh, civilians is a non-family yeah. or non-criminal. Yeah non-criminals. I mean, I, I talk about it in the book and in, in the last undercover. 
But I was literally sitting in the lobby of a hotel with a half million dollars awaiting two kilos of China white heroin, talking with an international heroin dealer who had just told me that his partner was in the lobby with a gun. And if anything went wrong, I was going to be the first person that they'd kill. And in walked a couple that I had lived with uh, when I was going to school before I got married. And they were an older couple. This was in Cincinnati, Ohio, Mm -hmm. and I was in Los Angeles. So we're talking 2,000 miles away. And they walked right into the lobby of the hotel. And the wife saw me, and I kind of shook my head very subtly that this is not the time for grips and grins. (laughs) And she realized something was wrong. And ushered her husband toward the elevators away from the, the main lobby. And within about 10 minutes, the two kilos show up and we arrested three international heroin dealers. But it's kind of one of those things, again, if you saw that on a movie, you wouldn't believe it. You know, that doesn't happen. 2,000 miles sure away, a decade earlier. If it wasn't the hotel, like, that would be less likely. But it's a hotel. People travel. I could totally see that happening. <laughs> well, it did. Wow. And thank God she was sharp. Yeah. 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 Cause they were, they were, they were a great couple. They were, uh, okay. I, I don't know who your audience is. No, no offense to Tupperware people, but they were the <laughs> Tupperware distributors okay. of Cincinnati and they were, they were vivacious. He would be the guy that would come up and slap you on the back and, you know, hey, Bob, how's the FBI type of uh, greeting? So, oh, okay. So at least they knew what you did. So when you yeah, give that right. sidelong glance, like, mm, she might, oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to pull out on a happy note. You've been on Oprah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, How did that come about? When we... When we finished up with the uh, NAMBLA investigation in the case, and we we indicted eight members of the group's inner circle, and one of those members was a Ph.D. psychologist that worked at two Chicago-area hospitals. So uh, it made the Chicago Tribune, it was a pretty big article in the Chicago Tribune about about this guy. And it was right when Chris Hansen was renewing was going on for another season of catch a predator. So she was having Chris Hansen on. And I, I think I, I, I won't speak for Oprah and her producing staff, but I, I think they didn't want to devote the entire show to Chris Hansen. Mm. So they were looking for some other filler, but still along the lines of the, the child predators. Incredibility. So they, they reached out for me. Well, awesome. Now where can people find out more? Bob net. Yeah, bobhamer.net, B-O-B-H-A-M-E-R.net. And there will be access to my books. So you get to see those. There's some sample chapters and some quick links if, if you're interested in buying them. And if you want to get a hold of me to come and speak to your group, uh, I would I would love to do that for right. a fee. I'm, I'm not... Uh, <laughs> Well, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not easy, but I'm cheap, but <laughs> there you go. Well, hey, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, Eric, for having me. I, I appreciate it very much. So there you have it. Bob Hamer, 
fantastic guest, great story. And if you want to hear more guests, please subscribe, tell a friend, and don't forget to check out the YouTube channel where you can interact with unstructured guests personally. Now, in the spirit of sharing, I'd like to present to you a couple other shows you may want to check out. Hey, I'm Studio Steve. And I'm Veronica. And we, and we are, are the, the Podcasters. Pod we have a podcast all about podcasting. We cover everything related to the craft, how to start a podcast, how to improve a podcast, how to promote a podcast, and how to reach a bigger audience. So come check out our podcast, Pod Sound School. We're on all of the podcast players or on our website, podsoundschool.com. We are dedicated to provide our podskis with up-to-date, easy, and actionable information, sometimes outrageous and always fun. And now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. What was that like might just be the most intriguing podcast you'll ever hear. Each episode is a conversation with a regular person who's been through an extremely unusual situation. Like Jeremy, who was bitten by a rattlesnake. Or Jennifer, who accidentally killed someone. Or Luke, who got caught smuggling cocaine. Real people in unreal situations. Listen and subscribe at whatwasthatlike.com.